Raising Joyful Children in an Angry World, a podcast dedicated to faithful parents navigating their families through a stormy culture. Welcome back to Raising Joyful Children in an Angry World. I'm your host, Paul Osborne. Today I want to talk about the culture wars, particularly that started in the 80s and their influence on sort of how we arrived to where we are today and some things we need to know about them going forward. And I want to start in 1986 with a gentleman by the name of Tony Campolo. Tony Campolo was a very popular evangelical speaker. He was incredibly funny. I heard Tony speak a number of times. And he wrote a book called Who Changed the Prices? Or it might have been Who Changed the Price Tags? But the book essentially said something like this. It was like I woke up one morning and the price tags at the dollar store were suddenly switched with those at Tiffany's. <clears throat> now, I'm updating the, the retailers a little bit. But Tony was trying to make a major challenge to the values that were being redefined in the country. And it took place about the same time or just before the movie Wall Street comes out, in which Michael Douglas's character, Gordon Gecko, famously says, greed is good. <clears throat> uh, Gecko is this character who has this words are what we make them philosophy, uh, the end justifies the mean, he, he's self-driven, I'm going to get rich, I don't care who it hurts kind of person. And Campolo is challenging these values at the same time that this sort of political culture war is also going on. There are two warriors there. One is named Jerry Falwell. He is uh, the president of uh, that time of Liberty University, and he calls his group the Moral Majority. And then there's Pat Robertson, who had the 700 Club. Both of these ministries are in Virginia. Now, I mention them because at the time, the, all this Zoom and internet technology and the ability to talk to somebody on television via your phone, it didn't exist. And both of these ministers had these broadcasting systems, and they were able to have satellite feeds. So in other words, if you're a television news show, and some story breaks, and you need somebody to come on that night and give you a conservative comment, well, you're going to call Jerry Falwell, or you're going to call Pat Robertson, because not everybody else can just jump on a satellite feed and be live on your television station, you know, that evening during for the news. What's interesting is that these guys probably got more than they bargained for. I want to say first that I think both Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson were, were solid men of God. I think they preached the gospel. But in this scenario, as they're getting invited into these news, these news events, the messages and the comments are sounding more. And it brought about this degree of politicalization that I don't think they were expecting. I mean, even the words, the moral majority, the name itself sort of contradicts that part in Romans where all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, or in, in the Gospel of John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And then the 700 club, I mean, typically the word club, when it's uh, describing the church or something of faith, it's not normally done in a complimentary way. And so I think those folks, in their attempts to battle for the culture, got something that they weren't really expecting. And then we had these televangelists, and there was this this group 
called the PTL Ministry, and Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. It was out in California. They were very popular. They had a connection with a lot of celebrities and sort of some Hollywood types would come on. And then they find themselves in a financial scandal, you know, kind of a Gordon Gecko Wall Street scandal of their own within their ministry. And there's some some stuff going on in their marriage, and this this whole thing just collapses. And of course, it's now all over the news. And this all is taking place, by the way, as the sex abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church is unraveling, and we're seeing bishops and archbishops and these very high up-ranking people in the country involved in massive cover-up. And then Tony Campolo takes this very strange turn, and he starts this new speech, and it, it goes something along the lines of, you know, I want to tell you three things tonight. First, there's 40,000 starving children. And secondly, most of you in the audience don't give a shite. Third, you're more upset that I said shite than you are about the kids that are starving. Whoa. Some kind of messiah complex, or was it like your day to you know, clean out the temple. I don't know what was going on, but this was really out of character, and this really took a strange turn. I mean, all of a sudden, you start to see this culture war now sort of spin out of control, turn into a moralization and judgment. There's very little grace and restoration going on, and now there's even accusations coming towards people who are even in the faith. And then this creates this howling on effect, right? So now the media and the comedians, late night television, talk show people, and even public educators now start piling on Christianity. Oh, we start explaining Christianity by the Crusades, or we point to the Salem witch trials. They never talk about the gospel or the Bible or anything. I mean, even President Obama, although we're past this, you may, you may remember he reminded Christians of the Crusades. And so this scandal and this piling on is, is kind of a humiliation. And so you start to see the church retreat into a more personal, private kind of faith. And so this reformational proclamation of faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, according to the scripture alone, for the glory of God, suddenly becomes a, a, a personal, private faith that comes by personal decision alone. And, the, and, and, and so not everybody in the church is retreating, but there is a very much a retreat from the culture war as this thing starts to unravel. Then on the secular side, there's a gentleman by the name of Alan Bloom, and he releases a book called The Closing of the American Mind. And Alan Bloom is questioning from the secular side uh, American education, particularly at the university level. And he's saying, hey, you, you're taking away universal truth. You're removing the concept of absolute truth. And while truth may be difficult to discover, it exists. And, and you're teaching that it doesn't exist. Everything's sort of becoming an opinion or a preference. And, and it's kind of interesting, Elon Musk's business principle, he calls it first principles, I believe, it's defined to mean you determine first what you know is true, and in those engineering companies, that's physics, and then you question everything else. 
it's interesting that the most innovative company that, that's around today sort of has taken some of the things that Bloom was saying. And so, and so now you've got an attack on truth itself. You've got this, you know, moral crusaders kind of, kind of getting whacked out. And so it brings out a new voices within, I would say, within the American culture. There's, a, there's kind of a new group of people now that are, that are comment. There's a, there's a demon conversation in that book. And the demons are talking about the, the people that they're trying to corrupt. And they, they're kind of saying, hey, these are the sort of folks we want this patient of ours to know. People that are rich and smart and superficially intelligent and skeptical about everything. C.S. Lewis really hits on these commentators. And now we see these folks as almost constantly in our voices. Of, on, the, on television and, and all these sorts of folks. We sort of see this sort of skeptic, scoffer-type communication now as the voice that, that are leading in, in the culture now. So this all kind of comes out of what I would call the culture war. And then probably the worst thing and that we're seeing now that's really exploding out of it is this further attack on truth by what is called the use of a trope. Now, a trope means that what people say or what people write, it doesn't really mean what it says. It's all symbolic. You hear people say, hey, that's code. That, that's code for this or that's code for that. If you want to get a deep dive on that, Stephen Paulson has a book called The Outlaw God, and as well as a book. And he goes into this trope scenario pretty well. But it's interesting, Luther talks about it. And when you read some of the sermons and discussions of the early ministers in our country, this term trope comes around. Let me give you an example of, of what I mean by a trope. This one will be, you know, it's, it's kind of a secular example. So in 1969, Merle Haggard, who's a country western singer, he releases a song called Okie from Muskogee. It's a song that's really contrasting the life in small town Oklahoma to the life of protesting hippies out in California. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's kind of like this new song by Jason Aldean, Try That in a Small Town. You get the message? I mean, Mural also has a song called When You're Running Down My Country, You're Walking on the, fight of, you're walking on the Fighting Side of Me. And Merle Haggard is this patriotic, sticking up for America kind of songs. And about 20 years later, you start to hear Rolling Stone and various publications and even some podcasts now suggesting that song was sarcasm. There's a story that Merle said, yeah, we were joking around about Oklahoma to some reporter, I still can't find who the reporter is, and then that joking around about Oklahoma then suddenly converted this song to sarcasm. Now, country Western is not a satirical format for, for music. It just never has been, and it still isn't today. And certainly Merle Haggard was not known as a satirist of, of somebody that was making sarcastic remarks, and then people didn't get the joke, but hey, I just took the money. And I realize that's poetry and hey, everybody's got their own interpretation of it. And so maybe it's not that big a deal, but it's that concept, the straight 
forward meaning of those words, of those lyrics, don't mean what they say. Just a couple of weeks ago, one of the presidential candidates, give you a, a political example, is talking about uh, his time of playing college baseball, and he's comparing baseball to basketball. And one of the reports comes out and says, oh, that was a trope. He was actually being racist. And so now you've got a, a very difficult time interpreting information because what is said doesn't mean what it says. What is written doesn't mean what is written. You see all the confusion of this. And probably the worst part of this is some of this has slipped into the church. It's, it's kind of sneaking in, and now you've got what, what I think is a serious problem. Let me give an example. I'm down in Florida on a vacation. I'm down there for about a month. And I go to the same conservative, serious about scripture type of denomination that I go to when I'm here in Texas. And the gospel reading is out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. You probably have heard it. I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, almost every interpretation, Matthew Henry, and you can look at others, look at this verse and they say, ah, you see, when we insult someone, it's not just a matter of a family issue or a friend issue or even an issue in court. But when you insult someone, you're actually insulting the God that made them. And that puts us in danger of the fire of hell. Now, that's a pretty strong, that's a pretty strong indication of the law. But the purpose of it, because I, if you're like me or like most people, you probably don't make it through a week without being like, oh, that was so stupid or don't you know how to drive or something like we're challenging people. But we're actually insulting the image bearer. We're actually insulting God himself. And so it's meant to drive us to our need for forgiveness, our need for the gospel, our need for repentance and restoration. When this gets done getting read at this church, we stop right there and the minister begins to tell us about what this actually is. And he suggests that we go to the Gottman Institute and he introduces the four horsemen of apocalyptic toxic communication. I'm not denying that there isn't something about toxic communication in this verse, but essentially this verse is about convicting us of our sin, of our treatment of other people. And the Goddard, the Gottman Institute is about, it's a marriage counseling. Uh, I'm not saying it's not a value, but it's psychology. It's marriage counseling. And all of a sudden we've left the text and we're now on poisonous communication. And once you understand how poison communication escalates through these four stages, then you'll know how to avoid it and how to walk away from it and how not to participate in it. Hmm. That's not what I think Jesus is saying. And uh, that's the danger of this. That's where we're trying to suddenly fit psychology into the scripture. We're trying to make the scripture bend to psychology. And, and I'll give this guy some slack. I don't go to this church. I'm not a member there. Maybe he's got a lot of divorce going on. Maybe there's a lot of nasty talk going on, and there was a reason for this. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But this is what becomes 
scary for us if we're in a church in which the scripture isn't taken seriously and the plain words, the straightforwardness of them mean what they say. So let me wrap this up with uh, Psalm 1, because I think Psalm 1 really does a great job of contrasting what we just spoke about in terms of the culture that we're in, in these wobbly institutions in which words don't really mean what they mean. In order for our kids to have joy, we, they have got to have a place where words mean what the words say. They've got to have a source of truth. We need that. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Those are the voices that are throughout this culture. But it says, But the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, that's the word of God, who meditates on that message, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water. See, the contrast is if you want joy, if you want your kids planted by a stream of water, that they grow up strong and joyful and bearing their fruit in season, we can't have the scoffers and the skeptics be the source of truth that changes all the time, that sort of wobbly, wiggly type of message. We need solid, straightforward, Bible-teaching churches that take the scriptures seriously, not just in creed, not just in some commonly held published beliefs, but the practice of that church that you're in, where your children are getting their Christian education. And in your home has to be that the scriptures mean what they say. The ultimate battle for the heart and soul is a fight for identity. Our King invites our kids to know who they are what to believe, and where they belong. Until next time, let's remember the words, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.